ready to create the impactful and profitable business you've been dreaming of? It's all possible. We've done it ourselves after leaving careers in law and clinical practice. Like many other professional women, we wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present to our growing families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other ambitious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And this is the Soulful MBA Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. We love audiobooks and we suspect that you do too. Because you're a Soulful MBA listener, you can get an audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial over at audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba for your free audiobook. Welcome to the Soulful MBA podcast, episode 127, Kelly DiNardo on living a life of exploration. I'm Jenny Barcelos, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sandy Connery, as well as our guest for today, Kelly DiNardo. Kelly is a freelance journalist and the author of several books, most recently, Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat, which gives her readers a modern, accessible, and personal look at the ancient yogic philosophy and the wisdom found within. Kelly is also the producer, editor, and co-host of the Living It podcast and owner of the Past Tense Yoga Studio in Washington, D.C. As a freelance journalist, Kelly specializes in exploration, whether it's internally through yoga and meditation, physically through health and fitness, culturally and socially through the profile she writes, or in the myriad ways that travel brings all of that together. Kelly has written for such esteemed magazines and newspapers such as O, The Oprah Magazine, Martha Stewart Living, The New York Times, and National Geographic Traveler. She has quite the enviable career. Kelly embodies a level of grounded ambition that we rarely see. With a career that embodies freelancing, entrepreneurship, writing, and yoga, she offers us an example of what's possible if we're really willing to dig deep and own our multifaceted whole selves. I think you're going to love it. And now on to the show. Okay, so Kelly, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you here. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So we were just recently introduced to you. So I would love if you could walk us through kind of your journey and how you found us and tell us a little bit more about your background. You've just written a book. You have a podcast. We'd love to learn a little bit more about your story. Absolutely. So I am a journalist and a writer. I actually worked at USA Today and USA Weekend a long time ago. And I had a very on-again, off-again yoga practice that became much more consistent when I started training for my first long-distance run. And, you know, like so many people, you go to the mat for looser hamstrings or less stress or back pain, and you stay on the mat for all of these other reasons. And for me, my consistent practice became really instrumental in helping me to decide to leave my job and to try freelancing. And so. I struck out on my own as a freelancer, and this was 
I'm dating myself. This was way back in 2002. (laughs) And I got this great piece of advice from another freelancer who said, just make sure you get out of the house every day, right? So you don't go stir crazy. A lot of time in front of my computer. And so I was teaching step and sculpting classes and again, dating myself. And I was studio hopping all over Washington, DC, which is where I lived at the time. And my boss at the gym knew that and said, well, why don't you get certified to teach with us, to teach yoga with us, and then you can teach yoga as well. And so I, I did that. So I was teaching in gyms and studio hopping, mostly for my mental sanity to get out of the house every day. And in 2008, 2009, journalism went through a really, really rough patch. A lot of Magazines were closing and they were laying, there were massive layoffs, and I lost a couple of my regular consistent writing gigs and started to panic. I thought journalism was dying. And my boyfriend, now husband, said to me after a few glasses of wine, admittedly, What would you do if you weren't a journalist? And I have no idea where the answer came from, but I said I would open up a yoga studio. And as soon as it just sort of popped into my head, I it stuck. And I started to look at the neighborhood we lived in a little bit differently and just very casually look at the open storefronts and the open retail space. And I think it was less than six months and I had opened Past Tense Yoga Studio. And that was almost 10 years ago. We we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this summer. And so thankfully, journalism has not died. And I now do both. So I am a full time freelance writer and a full time yoga studio owner. I love that, like, you, it's like for me, it's like if I decide I want to buy a new car or a new house and I can't get rid of that idea and I have to just like be 100% obsessed until it happens. So that's what happens with you and the yoga studio, it sounded like. So when you decided, when you got that little bug, that itch, was there any fear around the whole running a business side? Were you like, did you have to take courses to figure that side out? Like, how did you approach this like whole new learning that was in front of you? Right. And you know, it was double the learning curve because I had never worked in a yoga studio. I didn't know how studios worked. How to schedule teachers. Right. All of it. So very naively, no, <laughs> I just <laughs> was not afraid. And I think now looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I would have been much more nervous. And I don't know if I would have taken the leap because of that. I think that naivete actually served me very well. And because once I dove in, there was nothing to do but be brave and just do it. So I think can I, can I ask a, a question about that? So what kind of lease did you sign when you started? Yes. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I signed a three-year lease, if I'm remembering correctly. And I now I will say, so I didn't have, I had not taken any business classes, but I am incredibly lucky. My father is an attorney and he read through the lease ter- terms very carefully. And he connected me with someone who he has done business with. And I was able to get a loan to start the business through, through him, through, you know, this family friend. And that of course then gave me much lower interest rates and I wasn't putting everything on my, (laughs) my credit cards and all of that. So 
I was incredibly lucky in those two fronts. I also knew the my landlord. She was actually also the developer for the condo that I lived in. And I was at the time the president of the condo association. So we had known each other pretty well. And I think she was willing to take that risk on me. I also had always treated my freelance career very much as a business. I got dressed every morning as if I was going to an office at least for the first two years. I, you know, kept I had very specific goals. I belonged to a couple of writers group and female entrepreneur groups. And so I that mindset I think really helped me as well with opening the studio. So how do you split your time now? So your studio is going, you are still writing, obviously. So what does a day look like or a week look like for you? Yeah. So so Mondays are very heavy on yoga studio stuff. But other than that, my days are pretty evenly split. I would say I spend the first... It's very project specific too. So I would say generally I spend the first two hours of my day working on the studio and then I shift to writing work unless I'm on deadline <laughs> and then everything gets thrown out the window. And I use, I like to use my workout as the break between those two things. So I'll either go for a run or go to a yoga class or go lift weights or something just to A, physically move my body, but B, kind of help make that mental shift. Um, and that's really helpful. And then what I do is this is totally a trick. I think it came from Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, but I, next to my computer, I have a a legal pad with two lists, one titled writing and one titled past tense, which is the name of the studio. And it has everything I have to do on it. And the night before, before I shut down for the day, I pick two to five things, depending on how time intensive they are. And I put those on a post-it note and those are the things that I tackle for the next day. And then having this list gives me a lot of leeway. If I have a bad night's sleep, you know, especially when my son was young or if I just wake up not in the right frame of mind, I can look at my big picture list and be like, you know what, today I'm going to do something really mindless because I don't have the intellectual capacity to write that story right now. So it, it gives me a lot of flexibility, but that's generally how I organize my day and my week. Yeah, that that's totally a Tim Ferriss thing. I remember <laughs> reading that in his book. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm pretty sure. Here. I've been doing it for years. And it just works. It's like, who do I so, credit for that little tip? Right. Yeah. So tell us about the whole business in yoga. Like, is it going well? Are you? Are there things changing and shifting with running a studio for now compared to when you first started? Yes, and I think yoga has definitely gotten more professionalized. Though I will say having a studio in DC, it it tends to be a very professional type A community, even within the yoga community. But I do think that there's a level of professionalization that has certainly increased among, among the teachers that I know. I don't know if that's an overall shift or if that's a reflection in the fact that I'm more confident in what I'm doing, right? And so is that a reflection of how I manage and do things? I, I don't know. So what do you mean by prof- there's more of a professionalism? Like, how do you see that play out with the teachers? Yeah, a few ways. First of all, I don't have to chase down my staff the way I used to in asking them for things. They treat it like a job. Right. So this is a career as as, as opposed to just a part-time thing I do. Even the part-time, you're totally correct, but even the part-time people uh, treat 
this as a second job or career. Mm. It's not, it's a lot less herding cats than it used to be. A lot of the teachers I know have their own website, their own branding materials. You know, this is teaching at past tense is just some small part of their bigger business. Personal brand. Right. Exactly. So I think that's, that's one way. I think those would probably be the two, the two big ways I've seen it. And this is not a self-serving question, but do you see, <laughs> you know where this is going? Do you see the demand that your 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 teachers want to teach online or that the your students, your customers, do they expect past tense to be online? We haven't seen that yet. We have tried a few times to start audio classes or to tape classes as a perk for our members for when they're traveling, because so many of our people travel. Again, Mm -hmm. it's just a function, I think, of a lot of jobs in DC, or maybe just life in general, I don't know. So it's something that we have explored in the past, and it has not gone well. And so I actually have a ton of questions for for you guys about (laughs) how to do that. So it's something we're looking into for sure. Yeah, it's hard to figure it out yourself. For sure. There are a lot of moving pieces. Yes. The technicalities (laughs) of it, all of it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question for you about the studio that you founded 10 years ago. So a lot of people within that 10-year framework timeline start to think about, do I open more studios? Where does this go? Is it, are you happy with having one studio and sort of the experience of that's you know, one part of your bigger vision in your career? Or do you feel the pressure to open more locations? I don't feel the pressure to open more locations at all. I would love a bigger space at this point because we are rapidly, we have grown so much. But I went into past tense with a very strong mission statement. And a huge part of that was that we would be a community space and a community studio. And so I don't have a huge interest in franchising or expanding that because I think we would lose that community feel. And very selfishly, I opened the yoga studio that I always wanted to practice at, which is a small community space. That is plenty for me. We've toyed with it a few times in the past and every single time I've been like, nope, I just, I don't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I have two, at my previous life, I had two brick and mortar stores and it changed everything when we opened that second store. It was, it was just, it was really hard. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't know that I would, would have done it if I'd known what, what would happen, but it was difficult. So I totally get it. I want to ask you, so you are a journalist, obviously that's your, was your first profession. How do you weave storytelling into your yoga space? Is that part of your marketing, your copywriting? Like, do you try to bring that element into it? Absolutely. I mean, the first place we brought it into is the name. The studio is called Past Tense, which, you know, we say on the website is we're looking to move you past the tensions of every stress and tensions of everyday life, but it's also a nod to what I do. We have a very strong artistic community and an artistic focus. So all of our photos, of our staff are taken. We have professionals photos. And then the same photographer, she's fantastic, Stacy Bates, who is amazing and bi-coastal between DC and Seattle, actually. She does landscapes too. And so our inside, she's done all the photos on the inside of the studio. In the beginning, when 
I was living in DC because I'm not now. We did a lot of book readings after our Friday night happy hour class with local authors. We have a lot of folks who are musicians and singers. And so we'll do classes set to live music once a, we aim for once a month. It usually happens once a quarter. So I wouldn't say there is storytelling for sure. And I am very conscious of how everything is written. But I think the bigger picture is the focus on creativity. Oh, that's really beautiful. I love that. I love those like unique things that business owners do to really set their company apart. And there's no there's no max. Like there's all there's so many different ways someone can operate a studio. Like there's no limit. And I I love that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, we have three prongs to our mission statement: community, creativity, and joy. And that really drives absolutely everything that we do. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy to use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live stream programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. You can learn more at namastream.com. So thinking about this book you've written, because you're, it, it makes sense, right? You ha- you're a, a yoga studio owner and a yogi, and you're also a writer professionally. So it makes sense that you would write a yoga book. But tell us the story about how this book, Living the Sutras, came to be. Why this book? Why now? When did you know that you were going to write a book in this space? Yeah. So I actually, my two worlds have been very separate for a long time. I, I, I do a lot of health and fitness writing, but not so much, not so much yoga. When I do yoga, that's not true either. When I do yoga writing, it's very focused on the asana and the, and the physical practice, not the philosophy. So this idea came to me. I was actually reviewing some books that a publisher had sent me to consider for story ideas. And one of them, there was a stack of three or four books in the same series. And one of them had the word yoga in it. And I could not tell a difference from the original book. They had just put yoga on the title of the book to sell more books. And it made me very self-righteous and angry Mm. and judgmental, all the things, you know. And a few hours later, I stomped off to yoga class and I was still feeling really frustrated by this. I mean, how dare anyone just slap yoga onto something to sell anything that never happens in our culture at all. And, <laughs> and I was listening to my teacher, who is my co-author, Amy Pierce Hayden, and she was giving this really beautiful Dharma talk. And she does this really lovely thing. She makes the philosophy very accessible. And I sat there on, on my mat and I thought, this is what a yoga book should be about. And the light bulb kind of went off. And I let the idea percolate for a while. And then I talked to Amy about writing it together. She's at the time, I mean, I got my PhD in the sutras writing this at the time. I think she knew them a lot better than I did, but she's not a writer and I am. And I think that my biggest job as a writer is to translate difficult material for the everyday person, right? Certainly as a journalist. And in thinking about it, it really did kind of dovetail nicely. I mean, one of the one of the things we try to do at past tense is to make yoga accessible and modern and really relevant. And 
that was what we wanted to do with this philosophy. So it actually made a ton of sense once it all came together. And how was the process getting published? I mean, imagine that's easier for you than a regular person who has no experience with journalism, but how does that journalism background translate to finding a publisher and an agent? And Yeah. So I, uh, this is my second book that I have written and then I've ghostwritten a few and I've written chapters and several others. So, I mean, all told, I've probably worked on seven or eight books, you know, written them in some capacity or another over the last few years. So yes, I definitely had (laughs) the leg up on that. I had been introduced to an editor, Beth at Shambhala, and she really liked something else I had written and we had been talking about it. It just wasn't a fit for them. And she said, I love your writing. Anytime you have an idea, just let me know. And so even though I have an agent, I did a bad thing. And (laughs) I wrote to Beth directly and I said, Hey, I have the start of this idea. And is there, you know, would you guys be interested in this? And she said, yes. And could we send her some samples? And so honestly, the first, the first book I wrote, I had to write this massive 30 page book proposal with an annotated table of contents and a PR and marketing scheme and all of this other stuff. And I didn't have, we didn't have to do quite that level because I had already known this editor. And so she ended up based on the samples that we wrote, they accepted our proposal, our mini proposal. And then I got to call my agent, Jessica, who's fantastic. And I said, I did a bad thing. <laughs> and I told her what was happening. And she was at the time shopping around another a book proposal, um, which I put on hold for that. And then we worked on Living the Sutra. So yeah, I mean, I, I think for people who are interested in writing a book, I when I was first working on my very first one, my original agent said, surprisingly, uh, the idiot's guide, the dummy's guide to publishing or getting published was really good. And he recommended I read it. And that was how I figured out how to put together a book proposal. And that also had some really good tips about how to find an agent. And I will say, if anyone's looking, go to the bookstore, look at books that are similar to yours, read the acknowledgements. And if the author mentions the agent, you've got a good lead on a potential agent. And did you entertain self-publishing at all? No, I did not. I have really mixed feelings about it. And we, again, we were lucky to be able to go the traditional publishing route. And I loved working with Shambhala because for so many reasons, I mean, they're an independent boutique publishing house, but they also have an agreement with Penguin Random House for distribution. So I feel like we got the best of both worlds. You know, we got the, the attention and the support from a small publishing house with the oomph of a bigger one behind it. And so what does the promotion look like? Now that that book is written and out there, what do you do to promote it? Like how long is that period? Is someone guiding you? Like how does that all work? So the first three to six months, maybe like a month or two beforehand, before it's published, and then a few months after is pretty intense. There's an in-house publicist at Shambhala and she pitches us and the book to long form magazine or long lead magazines to newspapers, book reviewers, bloggers, all of that. And then I've gone through this enough other times and I know how important the publicity is 
we were, I'm sure we drove her absolutely crazy. We, (laughs) we were very on top of the publicity. And so we would come up with things too. Like we did a Instagram takeover of the Shambhala feed for seven or eight days, nine days leading up to the book's release that went really well. They did a great job of getting us on a bunch of podcasts. Um, We worked with a private publicist friend of mine, Melissa McNeese, and she got us on a bunch of podcasts and into different magazines. And then after a while, it dies, it does die down. And, you know, the the in-house publicist at Shambhala basically says, you know, I'll feed I'll, you know, respond to things, but I'm not actively pitching because she then has a whole other group of books coming up. And so for us, it's it's really on us to keep trying to get the word out. But thankfully, the book's done really, the book did really well. Um, I think it spoke to something that was missing in the market. And we're actually talking to them about some follow-up projects. So we'll see. What was the moment like when you finished, when you were like, done. (laughs) Yeah. When we were done for real. Well, there are a couple of places where you're done. So there's the point where you're done and ready to hand it in for the first time. And we had champagne when we finished. Amy would come to my house when we were working on it and we would work and write together. And my husband and, and son came home. I think it was three when we finished and they were so excited. We were finally done. They very kindly brought us bubbles to celebrate. And then, you know, then we go through the editing. And so then we had a second round of being done. And I think we were editing at a restaurant and got a glass of wine. So there was a lot of, you know, little mini victories through it all. In this day and age, with the digital age, there's so many more opportunities. So once you write a book, you're often you're not done. There's so many other places that you can you can work on this on this topic and and continue to grow. So tell us about the podcast. It is called Living It. Is that right? Yeah, yep. Did I remember that right? Living It. And when did you think of that? Is it an extension of the book? Did you think of it as you were writing the book? Like how did that come about? I can't take any credit for it at all actually. We <laughs> we were being interviewed by Rosie Acosta for her podcast Radically Loved and we the three of us just completely hit it off. And when we were wrapped up recording, we stayed on the phone, um, Zoom or whatever it was. And we talked for probably another half hour, 45 minutes. And she said, I really think that you guys should do a podcast. There's so much material here. There's so much else to kind of dive into it. And she planted the seed and we thought, and then she was very kindly, she spent some time kind of talking us through how to go about doing it and answering all of our questions. And we decided that it fit really nicely into the theme of the book. And the idea with the book is to make this ancient wisdom really modern and accessible. And I think one of the nicest ways to do that is to hear how other people are actually living their practice. Mm. So the first, we're doing it in seasons. So the first season kind of took this overarching look at yoga. So what is yoga? How, you know, what does it have to do with finding your purpose? We talked to Rod Stryker about that. What do we do to get in our own ways? Then how does yoga, you know, impact our identity? What does it say about our identity and our ego? And then what does it say about our relationships? And then how do we cultivate contentment? And then what does yoga and meditation have to do with each other? So that that was really good. And then we're planning season two, which we're going to launch in September, we're going to start recording this summer. 
And that will be 10 episodes focused on the yamas and niyamas. And then we have a rough plan for season three, but one at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's far out planning. That's yeah. That's great. That's no, impressive. That's, yeah. That's better than we do. <laughs> All right. So let's do Pris questionnaire. Are you ready for that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions and you just answer the first thing that pops into your head. So what is your idea of perfect happiness? I think it's being relaxed in the present moment. What is your greatest fear? I have the superficial one of like weird vertigo heights, things. I don't do well on suspension bridges, but I think probably the deeper one is failure to make an impact. What is your greatest extravagance? Travel. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Maybe my impatience, though I do sometimes Mm. think that serves me well. (laughs) (laughs) And where would you most like to live? Switzerland. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. I'm sure there's a story there. We're so <laughs> quick to know that. <laughs> what is your most treasured possession? My family. They're not actually a possession, but they're the most <laughs> important thing. <laughs> Who is your hero of fiction? Hero of fiction. Ooh. I don't know why this popped into my head because I haven't read it in so long, but Anne of Green Gables. I don't oh, know. Nice. Good Canadian answer. Yes, of course. What is on your nightstand right now? What book are you reading? I am reading a, a few books, Love You Hard by Abby Maslin, which is a fantastic memoir. And I'm reading Rod Stryker's book, The Four Desires. And I usually have a stack of like four or five. Those are the two that I know are on there. That's great. Thank you, Kelly. Okay, yeah. Kelly. So we wrap up every episode with a joy and a hustle. So a tool to help our listeners hustle in their career and business and a resource that can bring them joy. Okay. So... For me, I, was, I gave this a lot of thought. I think it's really important to take time off. It's something I really encourage my staff, my teachers to do. I ask them to do things all the time. And I always tell them, don't be afraid to say no. You should really like protect your, your time off. And so for me, my joy would be the perfect day off, which would mm. probably start with a short run or a yoga class. And if I'm really dreaming big, a hike through the Swiss Alps that would end with, you know, a nice glass of wine with my husband and my son, that would be my personal perfect day off. But I think it's really important for people to know what theirs, what their perfect day off would be. As for the hustle, there are a few things. My, we talked about it earlier, my, my list, my pen and paper list is a, is a huge thing. It keeps me organized and on top of things. I'm a firm believer. You wouldn't know it right now because I just got back from a lot of travel, but I'm a firm believer in a clean desk and my tidy list so that I can stay on top of things. I really like podcasts as a way to kind of keep me inspired and in the know about what's happening. I love yours. I am. I also listen to MBOM, which is a business mm-hmm. and yoga podcast. I love Radically Loved and Yoga Land for yoga. And then there are a couple of business ones I listen to, Boss Babes. Um, I'm trying to think of what other ones. Those are. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know that our listeners are going to learn a lot and be inspired by your story. So thank you so much. And where can folks find you online? So I have a website. It's kellydenardo.com. And there are then links to the past tense website and Instagram and all of that nonsense. 
Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free. Thank you.